Hi, I'm Yuejin, and I am an intern for the Elucidations. Let me tell you what is coming up in today's episode. We understand who we are by referring to the social groups that we belong to. Each of us identifies with a certain race, gender, or sexual orientation, and we live our social lives by belonging to some teams, institutions, or corporations. But what exactly are we talking about when we speak of social groups? For example, if what we mean by that isn't just any collection of individual human beings, what common property needs to be there among its members? Our guest Catherine Ricci thinks there are indeed interesting differences between demographic groups like women in general and sports teams like the Chicago Bulls. She argues that a social group has a structure. It is made up not just by who are in it. But also, what role each member plays, and what relation each has with one another. To explore these questions, this episode of Elucidations will feature Catherine Ricci for discussing the metaphysical status of social groups. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Catherine Ritchie, assistant professor of philosophy at the City College of New York, CUNY, and she's here to discuss social groups. Catherine Ritchie, welcome. Hi, hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Over the past, I don't know, decade or so, there's been an increased interest among philosophers in discussing the nature or metaphysics of social groups, whether that be like teams or corporations. Or things like men, women, white people, black people, Americans, teachers, truck drivers, etc., etc. And I think to a lot of people, this seems like a non-traditional metaphysical topic. Like this isn't exactly what Kant and Aristotle and Hume and Plato and so forth were writing about when they wrote about the grand metaphysical issues. So I thought maybe we could begin by talking about what metaphysics is. And then we can think about maybe like how this stuff about what groups of people are fits into that. Sure. Yeah. So if we're thinking about metaphysics, um, we're thinking about ontology. We're thinking about questions having to do with the nature of reality.、Um, sometimes questions about what exists. So we might ask, "Does God exist?" So that would be an ontological question. We might ask something about the nature of reality. So what are quarks like? Supposing quarks exist, what are they like? And when we're thinking about social metaphysics, we're thinking about questions having to do with whether certain kinds of social entities exist. So, are there teams? Are there racial groups? And then we're also thinking about questions having to do with the nature of these entities. So, if they do exist, how do they come to be? What are they like? How much can they change? Maybe should they go out of existence? Are these good entities or not?、Um, so, we're getting at those sorts of questions. So, I think a lot of the questions that We're asking and doing social metaphysics, or asking about social groups, say, are very similar questions to questions that have been at the center of ontology and metaphysics. They're just applied to the social realm. Okay, good. So ontology is the study of what does or doesn't exist. So just to take a simple example, I personally do not believe that ghosts exist. So another way to say, a fancier way to say that would be to say, Matt's ontology does not include ghosts. Yeah, exactly. 
Right. So if you're thinking about uh, an ontology, your, your ontology includes what you think exists, or a theory might have a particular ontology. So some scientific theory might posit that certain things exist. So if that is a true theory, the things it says exist do exist. And so, for instance, I think there are teams and committees, and I also think there are not ghosts. <laughs> is this different from, like, I don't know, modern science or physics? Like, you know, couldn't we say that, like, well, back in the day, maybe they used to think that there were ghosts. But, you know, now we understand that, like, ah, that this or that light effect in the sky, that's caused by a chemical phenomenon. And, you know, we understand chemistry now pretty well, understand physics pretty well now. So is that what ontology is? Is, it's like, is it like waiting for our understanding of chemistry and physics to develop, or, or is it something different than that? It's possible that chemistry or physics or other natural sciences might give us some answers to ontological questions. But it seems like when we're thinking about social groups, those just aren't the sorts of things that at least the natural sciences are largely interested in studying. Maybe there are some cases where we're thinking about species or something like that. You might think those are a kind of social group, and those are things that biologists study. But if we're thinking about different kinds of social entities, some of these just don't seem to be the kinds of things that are in the purview of natural scientific theories. Some of the questions we also are interested in in thinking about ontology or doing ontology, doing metaphysics, have to do with thinking about how much something can change over time or other sorts of features that might be central or essential maybe to that thing's identity. So these again might be questions that fall more squarely within philosophy than some of the other sciences. I think that makes a lot of sense intuitively. It's not like there's some chemical property that all and only the members of the Chicago Bears or something share. Um, If we're going to try to explain what it is to be a Chicago Bear, we're not going to talk about chemistry stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think certainly when we get to these sorts of groups that seem to have a kind of organizational structure, like football teams or like the Supreme Court, it seems like we're really thinking about human organizations or the sorts of societal organizations that we have created or constructed. Okay, so then I think the next natural question to ask here is, why on earth would I think the Supreme Court didn't exist? I mean, doesn't it obviously exist? (laughs) Yes, I think it does. Um, I think common sense certainly tells us that the Supreme Court exists, or maybe, you know, we learned this in our elementary school or something classes. It seems like it's assumed by, like, everything we hear on the news, for example that it exists. Yeah. So philosophers who might be inclined to think that certain kind of commonsensical entities don't exist are often thinking about about the ways we could explain the same patterns or the same outcomes or the same events without positing these kinds of entities. You might think, well, it seems like the Supreme Court exists, but maybe the Supreme Court is just nine individuals. Sure, maybe those nine individuals exist, And maybe those nine individuals do certain things and maybe do certain things that they think are parts of certain roles. But does that really require that there is some new kind of entity or some additional entity over and above, philosophers sometimes say, over and above these nine individuals? Yeah, so it's like we're playing this game of like, if we had to never talk about Supreme Courts, could we say everything we wanted to say about Supreme Courts only talking about Supreme Court justices? And maybe there's like a fancy little game we could play there. Translating every statement about the Supreme Court into a statement about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan and et cetera, et cetera, rather than the Supreme Court. 
And then it seems like for each person, we could just even do that further. Like, oh, we don't even have to talk about Elena Kagan now. We can talk about the parts of Elena Kagan, and then maybe we can talk about the cells comprising her mass. And then we can talk about the atoms making up the cells comprising her physical mass, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, until we get to something that's so submicroscopic that it can't be broken down into any further parts anymore. And maybe we can translate all talk of anything you know, in some really roundabout way into talk about fundamental physical particles doing stuff and maybe combining into complex systems. But the complex systems aren't an additional thing over and above the physical particles. Yeah, so some philosophers have been motivated by this kind of idea that we should have a theory that's as simple in terms of the number of things that exist. So it has as few kinds of things existing as possible. I'm not particularly motivated by this, so I'm inclined to think that we can start with the view that that certain kinds of things exist, um, and these include people as well as subatomic particles and things like groups as well. So if you start with a positive answer to certain kinds of ontological questions, existence questions, so do these things exist? Yes, it seems like they do. It seems like we have good reason to think they do. We can give sort of clear explanations. We don't have to do all this translation work. What does the Supreme Court pick out? Well, it picks out a particular group, and that group is varied in members across time, but it's been around since 1789, that group. If we wanted to say the Supreme Court has been around since 1789, but we're trying to talk only about subatomic particles, I have no idea how one would do that. So at least things are going to get really complicated. Maybe it'll just turn out that it's false that the Supreme Court has been around since 1789. So I think there are reasons to think these things do exist. I think there are reasons to think some groups might be causally relevant in ways that go beyond just subatomic particles, maybe in terms of, of one's identity. So I think especially when you think about racial or gender or sexual orientation or ethnic groups, we might think those are really central to people's identity. Maybe groups can actually cause things. So maybe a group can carry out some sort of action or believe something or make a decision that doesn't involve just the individual members making that decision or carrying out that action. So I think while many philosophers are motivated to reduce things down or eliminate certain things from their ontology, we might also sort of start our metaphysics or start an ontology by thinking there are certain things that exist and then inquire further into what those things are like. So what features are central to their nature, how much change they can continue to exist through, and so on. Okay, nice. So it seems like the project here is to come up with a theory of what it is to be a group of people like the Supreme Court, for example. What are the different things the Supreme Court can do? What are the ways that a Supreme Court can change? Like, what's the law-like behavior governing Supreme Court-like things? Uh, is that sort of the general project? Yeah, I think that's a way of getting at the general project. So I think the Supreme Court and things like basketball teams and chess clubs and baseball teams and some sort of corporate entities or corporate teams, it seems like there are similarities across this class of entities, like there are similarities across the class of mammals. So there's differences too, but there's some similarities. A central similarity across this class of entities is that they're a kind of structural entity. They have an organizational structure that includes roles for particular individuals, roles that can be played by different individuals at different times, and that partially defines what these entities are. So they're not just a bunch of individuals, those nine people that happen to be sitting in a room wearing black robes. Things like the Supreme Court are organized entities or 
groups with an organizational structure. Hmm. Okay, right. So some people, just because you're some people in a room doesn't necessarily mean you're a group. So maybe an example of that might be like a bunch of people waiting for the doctor, all ignoring each other, reading a magazine, maybe aren't working together as a group towards anything. So they're just some people. But once you have something that we're willing to dignify with the label group, there's relations that start popping up between the people. The people in the doctor's office maybe aren't related in any way. They're just ignoring each other. But in a group of people, there's this structure. Yeah, I think there are different kinds of groups, but I think this is getting onto something exactly right. So it seems like it seems like we don't just think every arbitrary collection of people is a group, or we're not, yeah, we're not at least willing to say it's a group. So maybe the Supreme Court is a group, maybe the Cleveland Cavaliers are a group, but then think about me and Aristotle and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Aladdin or something. Yeah. <laughs> so is that a group? Well, intuitively, no, it doesn't seem like it is. So what could mark the difference between the Cleveland Cavaliers and this arbitrary list of people I just listed off? Um, or what could mark the difference between women or African-Americans and some arbitrary group of people that all have you know, larger left ears than right ears. It seems like there is a difference, and this is something we might want uh, social ontology or social metaphysics to give us a theory or to give us an explanation of. Okay, good. So what is the difference then between nine people picked at random by a random number generator and, like, the Supreme Court? So I think the Supreme Court and other groups like that, so not just political groups necessarily, but teams and clubs and things like that as well, I think these are entities that have structures. So you could think of them as structured wholes or structured entities. What does that mean? Well, it means that there's a certain kind of organizational setup. So we might think, just to think really simply, um, the Supreme Court's pretty complicated given its long history and its political role. So think about a club. So a club might have a president and a vice president. Maybe it has a treasurer and a secretary. And then positions that members without sort of specially defined roles might also play. So you can think about these as positions. These positions are partially defined in terms of relations to other positions. And when some individuals start playing these positions, you have this entity that could maybe exist through new members joining or some members leaving. And that seems very different than just nine arbitrary people chosen at random. Those individuals aren't playing any positions. Um, They're maybe not in any sort of interesting social relations. Maybe they are, but we might think, well, it's certainly possible that they're not in any sort of interesting social relations, whereas the justice of the Supreme Court or the members of a basketball team are in many pretty interesting different social relations. Okay, so for example, if we have like the chess club, the president of the chess club maybe stands into the I can appoint you relation to the treasurer, maybe. Yeah, yeah, right. So we might think some of these are some of the relations that are really central to a group organizational structure involve power, the power to be able to do something or maybe involve obligations to other members of the club, say. Yeah, so I think these are the sorts of relations that would hold between the positions in these group structures. Oh, that's great. Actually, you anticipated my next question, which was going to be, are these always, like, in some way, kind of like power relations between members of a group? So I think some of the relations 
are definitely power relations. I think there there are relations that don't have to do with power. So think about in baseball. So the pitcher pitches, the catcher catches, the catcher might call the pitch. Um, so maybe that's a kind of power relation. But then the catcher is also going to return the ball to the pitcher. And that doesn't seem so associated with power, at least in the sort of power relations like appointing someone or requiring someone to do something or having the authority to fire or dismiss someone. This seems like a different kind of relation. So I think there could be relations that could be in our relations in certain kinds of groups that aren't related to power. But many of the relations we're especially interested in, I think, do have to do with power, hierarchy, obligations, or what one's expected to do. Can two members of a group, like, not be related? Like, I was thinking of, I don't know, maybe the shortstop and, like, the outfielder or something in the baseball case are have totally separate roles or something. Yeah, so I think certain individuals on, or certain positions or certain um, roles in a structure might be more intimately related or closely related than others. I'm inclined to think that the way these structures are going to be um, understood, or if we were sort of drawing them out on a piece of paper with some sort of circles where people might stand and different relations between those, that all of them will at least be related through other positions. So even if they're not sort of directly related, they're sort of part of this organization, and this organization maybe often shares some sort of common goal or project, and even if certain roles aren't sort of intimately or closely related, they'll be related in a kind of transitive sense in that role A might be directly related or closely related to role B, and B might be closely related to role C, and maybe A and C aren't as closely related. Nevertheless, they're both related to B, so they're they're part of this larger structure that involves um, various different relations. Yeah, so maybe just sticking with the baseball example, players who play positions that are far from each other on the field might still be aware that in certain situations, what I want to do is throw the ball quickly to my neighbor, and there I know that so-and-so is my neighbor, and then another player is that player's neighbor, but not my neighbor. But it, I need, in order to get the ball to the person kind of two hops down, I need to know about who is whose neighbor in order what, to see what path the ball is going to travel through the different players as we're throwing it to each other or something. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, so it seems like there, there's going to be a broader sense of cooperation or interaction and maybe a representation by others on the team, say, of other people's roles as well. Certainly on baseball teams, it seems like players should at least have representations of other of what other players are expected to do or likely to do, and that helps them play well together. Yeah, it's interesting. So it seems like in all the cases we've discussed, there are like rules or conventions dictating different roles, and then the people in the groups occupy the different roles, and maybe the roles then require that they stand in different relations to each other, or maybe they have different things they're allowed to do with each other, depending on what the rules are in the specific case, maybe the rules of baseball, and then the legal rules of the Supreme Court. Does that apply generally, or is that only for certain kind of groups, that they're like rule and convention-based? I think in the sorts of cases we've been talking about, so in things like teams, especially teams that are parts of you know, major leagues, and things like the Supreme Court or Senate or the House of Representatives, these involve a lot of conventions and a lot of rules, maybe legal rules, maybe rules within the franchise or within some larger organization. I think there are some groups that could develop in a way that's sort of more organic. Um, 
So if you think about like a, a chess club coming to be or a book club starting up, so maybe it sort of starts out, people send a couple emails around, they decide to read a book, and maybe sort of roles start to become defined, but it might they might become defined in a way that eventually becomes conventionalized, but maybe isn't as sort of explicitly conventional to begin with. I also think that, so we focus on groups that seem to be highly organized, but you might think, well, the sorts of groups that we often talk about the most are things like ethnic groups, racial groups, immigrant groups. And some of these, you might think, don't have defined roles for particular individuals. I'm inclined to think that that's right. And there's a pretty stark difference between things like a basketball team and things like gender groups. But I think that these can be also understood in terms of structural relations, larger, broader societal structural relations. But here again, I'd be less inclined to say these are based on sort of explicit conventions or rules. Rather, they're based more on patterns in society patterns having to do with what one is supposed to do and how one is supposed to act and how one is treated and what sometimes legal rights one has and so on. Yeah, so maybe in some groups, the relations between the members of the groups sort of spring up in this more bottom-up manner, and in some groups, the group was sort of initially defined or conceived by reference to the relations between the, the members. So maybe like an example of a bottom-up type group would be maybe like a friend group where nobody decided we were all going to be friends, but just it just so happened that because of everybody's schedules and randomness and who knows what, everybody started sitting together at this lunch table, and then nobody decided that so-and-so was going to be the charismatic leader of the friend group. There was not like there was an election that they held or whatever where we just, uh, you, know, you know, Hank over here is going to be the charismatic leader. But it just so happened that certain people started behaving certain ways. There were patterns of deference to this person sprung up naturally, organically, and then, well, what do you know? You fast forward a year in advance, and now there's this actual friend group with like a little social hierarchy in it, even though it didn't, it wasn't like formally stipulated or something. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, so it seems like sometimes a group structure might be sort of explicitly set out. Maybe people deliberate and decide how they want this group to be structured. Maybe this is set up through particular intentions, so they really intend for this to be the structure of the group. And then I think in other cases, right, something might develop in a looser sort of sense. Maybe not through explicit intentions. Maybe no one intended a certain person to be the leader of the friend group. But nevertheless, we think at a certain point, that person clearly is the sort of central officer of the friend group. (laughs) (laughs) Deciding which uh, mini-marts to go hang out at. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So if I had to pick which one of these two things a gender group was... I'm not sure what I'd say, but I guess I'd say it's probably more like the bottom-up type case, like the friend group, as opposed to the Supreme Court or as, a, as opposed to a team. But I'm not totally sure. Uh, what do you think? Is that the right question to ask about the category, like men or women? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question. Um, and I think this gets at an issue that people working in feminist philosophy, feminist theory, critical race theory, have thought a lot about. So... I think people often think that gender or race or ethnicity is a sort of natural feature in reality. Maybe it's biological or something or genetic. And this is something that a lot of theorists have pushed strongly against and have argued that 
while these things might appear to be natural, they're actually social in nature. So they depend on different sorts of social arrangements or social patterns. Yeah, so let's think about the case of gender groups. So if we're thinking about a gender group like women, one might think that this is a sort of natural category, and this is something that feminist theorists, feminist philosophers, and some critical race theorists have pushed against, have pushed against the notion that these are just biological categories, but rather are social categories. If these are social categories, are they to be understood in terms of structure? So I'm inclined to think that they are, that we can think of of genders as being sort of much broader um, societal structures. So individuals that are gendered as women or identify as women maybe are positioned in a particular place in this larger structure. This place might be partially defined in terms of power relations to other groups. It might be defined partially in terms of what's expected of individuals that occupy those roles. It might be partially defined in terms of how people identify and what they find really central and valuable about identifying with that sort of gender group. But I think often these will be societal structures that aren't intentionally created, say, in the way the Supreme Court was. So yeah, I think there is a difference in intention um, or a difference in sort of explicit, overt action in creating a structure of a team versus structures having to do with economic class or gender or race. Yeah, so maybe it's a bit like the friend group case, except it's a really, really big group, like 3.75 billion people or whatever it is for each of the... <laughs> yeah, assuming two genders anyway, which is, of course, oversimplifying. Yeah. Um, maybe it's similar to the kind of thing we were talking about with the friend group, except it's way more people, and it's also over a longer time scale. So, like, probably something like, for the length of human recorded history, maybe there has been something, or there at least been groups that have been called these things, men and women. So maybe the uh, how long the group has been around is also a bit the scale of that is also overwhelming. Do you think maybe that's a helpful way to think of some of these uh, categories, is that they're like the smaller groups we started off talking about, but uh, they have way, way, way more people in them, and they have existed for way longer? I think in some sense that's right. So certainly it seems like gender has existed longer than any particular friend group. So there's a difference in, in length of time that these groups have existed, while I think social groups generally are related to structure, at least the sort of central cases of social groups we've been talking about are related to social structures, I think there's a, a pretty major difference between social groups like courts, teams, committees on the one hand, and then social groups like gender and racial groups and economic classes on the other. And I think this comes down to a distinction between what we might think of as entities that are more object-like so object like like a lamp, object like like a basketball team. Maybe that sounds a little funny, but you might think these are sort of entities that exist in the world. There can be more than one lamp. There is more than one lamp. There can be more than one basketball team. Presumably there are many basketball teams. Whereas when you think of things like women, or if you think of a more intersectional group like working class African-American heterosexual women, you're thinking about something that's more kind-like, um, or at least this is uh, something philosophers sometimes call kinds. So this wouldn't be presumably a natural kind, a kind that sort of is found in nature outside of societal structures, but a social kind. So it's a sort of thing that 
can change in members dramatically, maybe like teams can as well, but it seems to be less of a particular sort of entity. There can't be, when you think of a gender category or gender group, there are however many there are, but it's not sort of the same as like a friend group. You can talk about 20 different basketball teams playing in a tournament. You wouldn't talk about 20 different yeah, I think I can see the intuition here. It's something like for each of these categories, there's one of them. <laughs> like if there's a group of people who are uh, heterosexual, African-American, working class women, there's one group of them. There, there aren't like 20 different ones. Whereas with a, um, you know, a corporation or a sports team, there'll be more than one. Yeah, yeah. There can be, in the case of these sort of entity-like groups... It seems like there can be more than one, um, whereas when you're thinking about kinds of entities or certain social groups that seem like kinds, it's like, well, there are lamps. That's a kind of thing. Of course, there can be a bunch of different lamps, but there's just one kind, um, or there's one kind if you get specific enough. And similarly, you might think that some kinds of social groups, like economic groups, gender groups, racial groups, are like that. There's a bunch of individual people in the group at a particular time, whether maybe because they identify as that, maybe because others identify them as that, but the group is sort of, there's just one of them. Yeah, this counting thing is interesting. It's like we count kinds maybe differently from the way we count, I don't know what to call them, non-kinds. So, you know, if you were to say, how many kinds of rat are there? It seems like the answer to that would be like sub-kinds of rat. Those are the Norwegian rat and the black rat and the whatever, whatever rat. Which is, whereas if you're like, how many basketball teams are there? You're not going to give sub parts of the basketball team as an answer to that. Yeah. I mean, you could. So you could say that, well, there are professional basketball teams and there are high school basketball teams and there are college basketball teams and there are, you know, intramural basketball teams. But usually if you ask how many basketball teams there are, you're going to say, like, how many basketball teams are there in this division or how many basketball teams are there in the NBA or in March Madness or whatever. Yeah. So it seems like this counting question also relates back to issues having to do with ontology that we started with that we were talking about a little bit ago. So when philosophers are asking, like, are there certain kinds of entities or what entities do you include in your ontology or what's in my ontology? You're thinking about this question. They're often thinking about what kinds of entities are going to show up in their ontology. So they're not going to say, well, I believe in tables and then say, I better go count how many tables I need to put in my ontology, like check out and like, see how many there are. Rather, they'll say, like, I believe in tables or I believe in furniture or I believe in material objects. And that sort of includes tables and chairs and a bunch of other things. And yeah, so similarly, we might think this sort of difference between particular entities, like a particular team, a particular lamp versus kinds of entities this distinction that we're seeing in social groups or that I think holds between different sorts of social groups also shows up as a sort of more general question in ontology. So you've argued that there can be two different groups of people that have all the exact same individuals in them, but they're still two different groups. And that this conception of a group as being a structured whole puts you in a good place to explain what it means to say that the two different groups can have exactly the same members. Uh, so what would be an example of that? Yeah, so I think we might think of a basketball team and a book club, say. So say that the 
Cleveland Cavaliers decide to start a book club. So all of the members of the Cavs right now are also members of the book club right now. But you might think that the basketball team isn't identical to the book club. Well, you know, when the book club meets, they're sitting around, they're talking about a book, they're not wearing basketball shoes, or maybe they are, but they're not playing basketball. When the Cavaliers meet on the court, they're dribbling the ball, they're playing another team, or they're practicing. So it seems like they're doing very different sorts of things. And if you have this picture of of certain kinds of groups, of these organized sorts of groups, as structured wholes or entities that have structures, the difference can be captured in terms of different structures in these two entities. So the book club maybe has a structure that involves a president and a vice president or just a bunch of members. Maybe each person plays a very similar role. And the basketball team has different sorts of positions that different individuals play. So the structures are different. So even though the same individuals are playing playing roles in the book club and playing roles in the basketball team, the entities are distinct because they have different structures. So if you don't have a view on which these groups also have structural elements that are central to their identities or really parts of what they are, you just think groups are a bunch of people. You're not going to be able to capture this difference because you just have one bunch of people, right? So you sort of start listing out these individuals or you point to these individuals they're just there, right? You just have these individuals, and there's not a good way to capture the difference between the individuals as a basketball team or the individuals making up a basketball team and the individuals making up a book club. Nevertheless, it seems that we could have uh, we could have two distinct groups here, the club and the team. I thought it was really interesting how when you introduced this example of a basketball team that happened to be made up of the same people as like a book club, but we definitely want to say they're different groups. I thought it was interesting how you characterized that at first as, well, they like do different stuff. The book club people meet together in order to read books, and the um, uh, basketball team meets to play basketball games. Is this idea that a group has a uh, structure to it, consisting of relations between people, is that just another way of expressing this idea that different groups of people like do different types of things? I think group structures do get at part of what groups do. So if you think about the different roles and the different relations between roles in a group, often, you know, just looking at that, if you knew nothing else besides sort of what these roles were and how they were related to one another, maybe certain features that people needed to have to play the role or like that they needed to be people playing the role, um, I think you would find out quite a bit about what the group was up to or what the group was often aimed at. But then I think groups are also parts of larger social structures. So two teams might play each other in a game. So then you've got a team and another team. Both of these have internal structures that involve roles and relations between the roles. The game has certain rules uh, that specify how the teams are to interact um, when the game ends, who wins the game. So I think to really get the full picture of what a certain kind of group is aimed at or what a certain kind of group is doing, the internal structure will give you part of an answer to that, and then you'll need to look sort of outside that as well. So why do you think it's helpful to come up with a good theory of what groups of people are and what kinds of properties they can have and what they can do? Yeah, so I think considering issues in social metaphysics or considering what social groups are can be important in a lot of different ways. So I think 
it's interesting to get a better, clearer understanding of what the world is like. And that's so much of what we do generally in philosophy and in science and history and all sorts of other disciplines. Um, So we're trying to figure out what the world's like. Here's part of the world that's really central to our lives, like what groups we're part of. If you think of families and our identities in terms of our nationality and our gender and our race and our ethnicity, um, if you think about the sorts of organizations we care about or the teams we root for, like, these are all really central aspects of our of our lives. So I think it's interesting just to try to figure out what these things are like. But then I think if we're going sort of beyond the sort of intrinsic interestingness, which at least I find, there's a lot of issues both in philosophy and in politics and social justice more generally that clear understanding of the nature of social groups might help to inform. So we can think about issues in ethics. So do groups have responsibilities? Do groups have obligations? Can groups actually carry out some action or make a decision? Do we have to respect the rights of groups, not just the individuals, but groups themselves? Um, So there's sort of issues there. There's issues having to do with knowledge or whether groups can know things, whether being a member of a group could affect whether someone's testimony is believed more or less. And then thinking about issues in, say, identity politics. So how should we understand identity politics? Is this something that we ought to pursue or ought not to pursue? What kinds of groups are involved in identity politics? So have we moved to the level of something more like a team or a court when you have an organized sort of entity carrying out some sort of politics? Or are we more at the level of a kind of sort of kind level group, like a gender group or an ethnic group. So I think some metaphysical issues might be informative in thinking about whether identity politics is good or not, or should be pursued or not. And then I think in thinking about social justice, so we don't live in the most just world, that seems true. We want to live in a more just world. I hope that's true for everyone. How do we do that? How do we make the world more just? Well, I think a step in that process is understanding what the world's like and a step in understanding what the world's like, a step that's really central to social justice projects is thinking about what social groups are like. So how they came to be, how we might change them, what features they have. I think these are all elements that could be part of a social justice project. Certainly not the entirety of a social justice project, but a preliminary step in that process. Yeah, I have to say I completely agree with that. It seems to me that we're really interested in this type of stuff. Like, what does the fact that you're a member of such and such group entitle you to say? You know, if I'm a fat person, does that entitle me to speak on behalf of fat people? Well, it's very complicated, and who really knows? And, you know, does anybody have the right to speak on behalf of anybody else? Or do we have more or less of a right to speak on behalf of each other, depending on who we are? And, you know, what even is who we are? You know, these are questions that we're all super interested in right now in our cultural moment. And maybe in order to be able to even have those conversations, we need to just get clear about what a group even is. Yeah. I I mean, I think thinking more about the nature of groups, or at least some people spending some time thinking about the nature of groups, is really useful. And I hope it's useful. It can help sort of clear some space and allow us to think in a more productive way, hopefully, about how to understand what the world's like and then also how to better shape the world to create this sort of more just social situation that we want to be the case. Catherine Ritchie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.